All right, well, tonight uh, we are going to be in Psalm 89. I mean, Psalm 89, and we're going to pick up in verse 38, and we'll read through the end of the psalm, which will be verse 52. And so this is uh, kind of almost part two of this, uh, this psalm as we've been looking at it. We looked at the verses 1 through 37 last week. We are going to review that a little bit and uh, get ourselves kind of back into the mix as far as where, where, where we are at in the psalm. Uh, and, then we will, uh, and then we will jump into the, uh, the, uh, the, the last section, the portion that we're reading tonight. So we'll begin, uh, on, you can find this passage on page 496 in the Pew Bible. We'll be picking up in verse 38 of Psalm 89. Hear the word of the Lord. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of his sword. You have not made him stand in battle. You have made him split his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of shale? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen. And amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So as I said, we're picking up uh, uh, in our psalm uh, where we left off last, last week. Uh, now, the, the first uh, 37 verses or so are actually very positive, uh, believe it or not. If, if you weren't here last week, you might think this, this was a very negative psalm. It's actually a very positive psalm until verse 38, <laughs> until the section that we read tonight. And so it's always fun to be the downer, you know. When, uh, so, uh, but we're focusing on that dark turn uh, that the psalmist takes here, which raises the question of the whole psalm itself, a question that we uh, mentioned last week, which is, what do we do when the wonderful promises of God have, at least in our experience, become woeful disappointments? We ought to know that the Psalms fall into the category of what the Jewish people would call the writings or wisdom literature, we like to call in our English Bibles. Uh, we go to the book of Proverbs and we find statements that say, uh, you know, if we seek wisdom and righteousness, then blessing will follow from heaven. That, that we ought to avoid the path of unrighteousness and, and wickedness, for therein lies the path of death and sorrow. There's, of course, the oft-quoted proverb that if you will simply train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. We all know it, right? 
And certainly many parents can nod in affirmation based on their experience. But there is a parent who raises their hand and say, I did this. But my son rejected the faith. And he doesn't walk with the Lord to this day. Are the promises of God not true? I know he's true. But I can't make sense of it in my experience. We all know those stories. We may have those stories. This is a song for those who have that experience. Tonight, the plan is simple. We're going to quickly review the first 37 verses of the psalm to, again, get back into the flow of what the psalmist's writing is and his thought is. And then we're going to jump back in to that turn and see what it means to seek the Lord when it all goes wrong. So first, and this is really, again, this answer that question, what do we do when it seems like the promises of God have become woeful disappointments in our lives? And the first thing that we do is, we talked, that we talked about last week, and this covers all verses 1 through 37, is we learn to praise the Lord for his loving covenant sovereignty. We learn to praise the Lord for his loving covenant sovereignty. And, and verses 1 through 18 focus on praising God for his sovereign rule as our creator. Uh, the author of the psalm, Ethan the Ezraite, uh, praises God for his sovereign rule over the, uh, the uncontrollable creation. The Lord who made the mountains but can bring them crumbling down with a whisper the God who made the raging sea, but can still it with a word. This is the Lord. Here is the perfect ruler and king whose righteousness and justice are the very foundation of his throne, whose steadfast love and faithfulness go before him. And as a people in a fallen world, we long for such a ruler as this. And blessed are those who live under the rule of this God, the creator and king over all the earth. And we know that this is an important starting point for us when things have gone wrong. Because we may find ourselves searching and coming up empty for things to praise God about because our lives have taken such a momentary dark turn. We may be thinking about, I, I know I should praise God for, but I'm coming up empty right now. And we are taught by the psalmist to turn our gaze outward away from ourselves, away from even the misery of our life experience in that moment, and look to the Lord who is the Lord over all the earth, who displays His goodness and His rule, and to see it in creation, and to praise God for it. We are also uh, taught to praise God, in verses 19 to 37, praise God for His covenant love. The heart of this psalm is a Davidic Love. It is the love of God expressed in the covenant that he made with David in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, Ethan, the author of this psalm, spends the entire middle section of the psalm praising God as he recites the covenant promises made to King David. His focus is there because that's where his hope is. The covenant contains promises that don't just apply to David, but to the whole of God's people. Because the blessing of David is the blessing of those under David's rule. God promises in the covenant to bring about the eternal rule of David's descendants for the blessing and joy of his people. 
He will establish David's rule forever and forever. His people will be blessed. And so there are two things we need to consider at this point. At first, it's that our God is a God who relates to his people through covenant. And, it, and that is the only way he does it. It is through covenant. As our, our, our confessional or Westminster confessional documents state, the distance between God and the creature, as human creature, is so great that while the light of nature may reveal to us some information about God and that he exists and he's all-powerful, that that knowledge is only enough to condemn us. It's not enough to save us. It's not enough to do anything for us. Um, and, and it's not enough for us to know God savingly. So God relates to us in it covenantally. He makes a covenant with his people and he, and he commits himself to us, brings us to himself and condescends to us. Heaven comes to earth and blesses his people. And secondly, our, our God expresses his special saving love only through covenant. God's particular love for his people is only expressed in covenant. We see it in the covenant that God made with Abraham, the covenant that he made with Moses, the covenant that he made with David. It is the love of God, that steadfast love that's, that we use to, in the English to translate that Hebrew word chesed, it's a word that is complex and textured, that, that is this obligatory love, a love with obligations and duty and commitment and responsibility, a love that endures. That is that love that God gives in his covenant. It is this love that has captured the heart of the psalmist. It is the love that he longs for, that he knows is there in spite of the fact of what he, he sees around him. It is a love that he knows that his God has for him because his God has covenanted himself to his people. And so Ethan the Ezraite, after meditating on the sovereign rule of God, focuses upon the covenantal love of God. Here is the, and so here is the core of his hope that he makes clear. The promises of God made to David. He brings them up at the beginning of the psalm. He goes on and on about them in the middle of the psalm. And it brings them up again at the end of the psalm. He just cannot get enough of the covenant God made with David. For as he records, God's, God has promised to do it. God has sworn according to himself and his holiness. And God cannot lie. And this is how we are taught to stir ourselves to praise when everything else has gone wrong. We meditate upon God's sovereign rule, but we also rehearse the covenant promises that have been given to us in the scriptures and, to, and, and that we would excite our faith and our hope because we know that while we may not experience the, the blessings of those promises immediately in the moment, we know that our God has promised these things, He has taken action on these things, and He will fulfill these things because He cannot lie. He has sworn them, He has covenanted Himself with blood to do them. He is more than able, and He has committed Himself. And so this brings us to the turn. 
This brings us to the last third of the psalm where we spend the rest of our time tonight. The turn where Ethan reveals that everything has gone wrong. And he focuses our direction in sorrow, when we are in sorrow, encouraging us to seek the Lord when it all has gone wrong. To seek the Lord. In verses 38 through 52, this is what he's doing. Even with his pain and his sorrow, he's seeking after God. But we need to ask ourselves, what happened here? What is it that set Ethan off? And so in verses 38 to 45, uh, he, he goes on, he, he talks about this. And, and essentially, and we noted, well, we noted last week how Ethan the Ezraite was, he's mentioned along with Haman, um, who were both appointed around the time of Solomon. And so, and so this is the, the, the time in, in which uh, uh, Ethan the Ezraite is living. And so what happened that caused him to write all this? Well, it's all summed up in a name, Rehoboam. David receives these amazing promises from God in the covenant. Promises of eternal rule through his line that will never fail. And then those promises begin to come true. David's reign is not without his problems, but he is... It's not, without, it's not without cause that he is seen as the greatest king of Israel all, forever, right? And then his son Solomon is born, and he ushers in what is the golden age of Israel, where there's no more war. There's only wealth and peace and prosperity. Every Israelite sitting under the shade of his fig tree, right? Rest on every side. And, and, and that's where Ethan lives. That's where he's seen it. The golden age. What God, what God promised David was coming true before his very eyes. And then Solomon apostatizes. He turns and starts worshiping idols and mixing in idol worship. And we don't know if Solomon repented, but we do know that he died. And his son Rehoboam rises up, but he's very different from his father and his grandfather. When Solomon was young, he asked for wisdom because he understood his need and his inexperience. Rehoboam, on the other hand, rejects sound counsel and divides the nation. The nation rejects Rehoboam and splits into two into a northern and southern kingdom, and then things go from bad to worse under Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north, who leads the people into rank idolatry. And there's Ethan the Ezraite watching it all come crashing down. You think about what they call the Roaring Twenties in America, which concluded with the stock market crash in 1929. People looking around, stunned, asking, what happened? It was going so well. What happened? There was a whole view of modernism that thought we were just making material and scientific progress and 
mankind and humanism we're just going to go whoosh you know and secularism was on the rise and it's just going to go great if we just keep it zith, and then all of a sudden uh, people use that technology to invent things like machine guns and trench warfare in World War I and it comes tumbling down we go what happened what happened that'll never happen again right <laughs> The psalm, the, the, the psalm, in this, this psalm, the cry of the voice of Rehoboam's, Rehoboam's time is a cry of bewilderment. Bewilderment at the circumstances, wondering what happened to the promises of God. And he states the effective here, the effective undoing of Israel in verses 38 to 45. That God has broken the line of David, cast off and rejected him. And we know if we've read our Old Testament, it's going to get worse before it gets better. The last recorded king of David's lineage will have his eyes gouged out right after seeing his sons killed in front of him as he's taken captive to live the rest of his days in Babylon. The people are defenseless, he says. Their enemies rejoice and plunder at will. The military might of Israel has been reduced to nothing. There is no more splendor in Israel, no more splendor in the line of David, for the blessedness of the king has come to an end and there is only shame. What has happened to the promises of God? Well, as we move to verses 46 to 51, we have to begin to assess the failure here. What's what's happening? How did this come about? What's going on here? The psalmist asks a series of questions uh, in this psalm that are familiar to anyone who spent uh, a, a good amount of time in the psalms asking, How long, uh, O Lord, uh, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn against your people? He asks God to remember his weakness, how short his life is, the, the emptiness and vanity of the life of man, man's inability to escape death. He asks God, Where is that covenant love for David? Because he can't see it. Where is it, Lord? He finally asks God to remember the mocking of his people and the mocking of the promises concerning the king. In all of these questions, the psalmist addresses the big question of this psalm and the question many believers wrestle with when things go really, really wrong in their lives. Did the promises of God fail? And what do we do when those promises in our experience become great disappointments? But this is not a new wrestling. This is not a new issue for the people of God. It's not a new question. Think of Abraham who is given wonderful promises by God to bless the world through his line being 75 years old and not having one kid. And he would be 100 before he had the actual son of promise. He tried his own kind of God helps those who helps themselves method with his wife's servant, uh, Hagar, right? And then God apparently didn't talk to him for 25 years. Think of Israel, who toiled under the yoke of slavery in Egypt, For hundreds of years, with the promises that were given to Abraham, 
But hundreds of years they toiled in slavery in Egypt before God brought them out and took them into the promised land. What happened to the promises of God when they were in hundreds of years of slavery? Think of Israel, who because of their sin were unable to enter the land for a generation, left to wander around the desert until the unbelieving generation dropped dead and the new generation came up. Even when they entered the land, they had setbacks because of their sin, particularly at Ai, where they were momentarily defeated. What happened? Let's go back to Egypt, where the promises of God. The times of the judges. A period of darkness, sin, and oppression by other nations. Where are the promises of God when, when they're being marauded and raided? And, and, and have these Philistine overlords. Where are the promises of God? What about Joshua? What happened to Joshua and Moses? Even the time after this psalm was written, kings got worse and worse. The northern kingdom never had a good king until the northern kingdom was exiled by Assyria. And then the southern kingdom exiled by Babylon. Where are the promises of God in exile? Think of the opening of the New Testament. Where the Jews prayed and lived under Roman rule, waiting, hoping, longing for the day when the son of David would come forth. Where are the promises of God with the Romans and their boot on the neck? Of God's people. Even the disciples. When they found the son of David. They walked around with him. For, for three years. Sat under his teaching. And then were witness to his murder. And his death. And what did they tell Jesus. On the road. We thought he was the one. We don't know what we're going to do now. Where are the promises of God when the Messiah is dead? These questions, we have, we, that, these questions, though, are not questions of unbelief. They are actually questions of faith. They are faith-seeking understanding. That's what the psalmist is doing here. They're questions from those who believe the covenant promises... That's why it bothers them. Because we have these promises. And this isn't lining up with what we thought, with what we expected. So what's going on? They're asked by those who believe but who do not understand what God is doing. They're asked with the knowledge that what has failed is not God, but certainly our understanding is failing. And we may find ourselves asking those same questions tonight. We may know that we've asked those questions before. And we may ask those questions tomorrow. But one thing we do know is that we have something that Ethan the Ezraite did not have. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The fulfillment of God's promises in the Davidic covenant. To be sure the hope of Ethan. Is the hope of the covenant. Which is fulfilled in Christ. 
But we live on this side of the cross. And we know what the psalmist can only dream of. We know that what he can only dream of, we know as a certain reality that God has fulfilled and is fulfilling all his promises to David in Jesus. Jesus is the eternal king who has died, been resurrected, is now ascended and seated on his throne, ruling, and one day his enemies will be put under his feet. And so this means that if we are perplexed and bewildered by the painful world, then, then, we, may, then we have many who share that experience. We even have that experience put into song. We have that experience put into our scripture to be sung by the people of God because this is a common experience in the life of God's people. But it also means that we have hope because God has been fulfilling His covenant promises since the beginning. That's the beauty of being a Christian. As you look back and you see And you understand more and more why Jesus said, Abraham would have rejoiced to see my day. Why? Because he is the fulfillment of those promises made to Abraham. We see Jesus. And we see in him the fulfillment of his promises. God has been answering yes to his covenant promises to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to us in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. All, the apostle says, all of his promises are yes in Jesus. And so this brings us to the close of the psalm in verse 52, which is a closing with hopeful praise, which is a, again, it's a weird turn in the psalm. It was going great, lots of praise, David, praise, okay, great. And then all of a sudden, dark turn, things are bad. And then all of a sudden, it's bad, 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 bad. And then at the end, it just goes, blessed be the Lord forever and ever, amen and amen. The psalmist closes this psalm with a line of eternal blessing for the Lord. And those who organized the psalms placed Psalm 89 right here. To close out book three of the Psalms. It is a fitting end to this section of the Psalms. Because while the psalmist's problems are not immediately resolved, he yet has hope because his God lives and the covenant love of his God may not be experienced all the time, every day, but it is still there. It is still there and it will return. It will come in fullness. It will come in greater, fuller revelation. It will be fulfilled. And so the psalmist calls expectantly for the blessed praise for the Lord. Without the covenant, without Christ, our life would have to be evaluated by our circumstances. You think about that. And now when your circumstances are comfortable and affluent, that's great. 
But when they're not, that is despair. For those who are doing well in their circumstances, wonderful. For those who have known sorrow and hardship, tough luck. Sorry. There is no hope beyond the present for those outside of the covenant. For those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the covenant of grace, in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we always carry the hope of, the etern- of eternal life in the kingdom of God. We carry this treasure in these jars of clay. Our best days we know in this life will never compare to a single day in glory. In our worst days, our greatest sorrows will depart from us along with the pain and the tears and be forgotten forever. For God will wipe them away. And so we are encouraged tonight that if or when everything has gone wrong, leaving us bewildered and spinning Wondering what in the world is going on. What in the world. We know God is in control. But we don't get it. To recall to ourselves the truth. About our all powerful God. Who rules over the universe. We are encouraged to rehearse. The things that we know. The covenant promises. Of the gospel. In which we have hope. And we are compelled To seek the Lord, to humble ourselves under his mighty hand in faith. Bringing all our grief and fear and sorrow and tears and despair to the God of promise and life and light. And we set our gaze upon his blessed son in whom we have salvation, forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. And what God promises He will fulfill what he begins. He will complete in the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, that though we may not understand why certain terrible things have come into our lives. Lord, that we know you love us. We know that you have promised to uphold us and sustain us and strengthen us and to bring us into your glory and eventually, ultimately into the new heavens and the new earth, the very kingdom of God forever. And Lord, we pray that when we are spinning around, that we would find our orientation, that we would that we would set our eyes upon that fixed point of your sovereign power, of your covenant love, and the revelation of that love in the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would sustain us until the time when we can we can point and see again, oh, there, there's the covenant love of God in my life. There is that work. I can feel it. I can see it. But Lord, even if we struggle and we have sorrow and loss and bewilderment throughout the, the rest of our lives, we know that you are faithful 
and you will fulfill your promises. And so, Lord, we say, blessed be the Lord forever and ever. Amen and amen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.